Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you guys very much and, and lady. <laughs> My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're a visitor or you're new, we're really glad that you're here today. And those who are uh, joining us online, uh, glad that you're here as well. Uh, this week, we had an exciting week in the life of our family of churches. We had our annual uh, church planter family retreat. So if you're kind of new around here, our church plants other churches, as you've already heard mentioned. And we, um, we try to get together once a year with some of those church planters and uh, that we've sent out, uh, all the ones that are called pillar and near in military communities. We gather that group of church planters together. So we had planters in from Okinawa, Japan, and California, and all along the East Coast at different uh, military installations, as well as some people who are planning to plant new churches, including Mike and Ted, who were there this year with their families. And so this is a photograph of 86 of us that were gathered together uh, this week for those few days. And it's a really encouraging time. Uh, I show you this so that you see, um, the pro in some measure, the product of your work. We've, for a long time, been about this work, and um, you guys uh, have, whether you know it or not, invested a lot in this group of people here. Uh, most of those people, many of those people, started off as members here. Uh, in the same way that your members here and somewhere along the way God called them to go start a church, they stepped out in faith. A lot of them made career shifts to do that, and it's been very exciting to see how the Lord has taken that uh, faith and developed it in this family of churches where literally thousands of people go to church every Sunday at a church called Pillar somewhere around the world, and, um, and lots and lots of missionaries are sent, and uh, ministry is done in Marine Corps communities and military communities all over the world. Uh, because of that effort. So I wanted you to see this picture to know uh, what we're involved in and, um, and I hope that it'll encourage you to pray for those families as they go out. Now this summer we're going we're gonna, to uh, have a, a sermon series uh, on the subject of temptation called Forbidden Fruit. And so I'm going to start that, kick that series off today. And I know that temptation probably isn't the lighthearted fun sermon series that you'd hoped for for the summer. But we're going to talk about uh, fighting sin in our lives this summer. Uh, and the good news is that if we, uh, if we gain some measure of victory over our sin, it will produce a measure of joy in our lives that we've never experienced. And so the hope here is that we look at something kind of difficult in order to reveal something kind of great so that we are closer to Jesus and closer to each other. So we're going we're gonna to call this series Forbidden Fruit, and we're going to be looking at uh, two sorts of passages. One is instruction about how to deal with temptation from uh, the Scripture, but the other is examples of people in the Scripture who were tempted and handled it, handled it well, and some who didn't handle it well. And so today, we're going to look at that, uh, that, that the latter. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus, and uh, spoiler alert, he handled it well. So we're going to look at his life today and how he handled temptation, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, try to learn from that. So let me pray before we begin and just ask God to uh, give me clear mind and words and um, for him to teach us today. Jesus, we love you with all our heart, and we, we gather together today, we come to this uh, book today, we organize our time to be able to be present here, we set up all this equipment, we did all of this stuff just so that we could listen to you today. You've got, you've got words for us, 
that you've preserved and held through the ages for us to be able to feed on today. You've given them to us so that we could be changed and bettered, enriched. In some ways, you've given them to us so that we could fight uh, the tempter. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that your words today would land on us unusually strong, that we'd listen to you and be attentive in a way that we're sometimes not. God, would you stir us up to have a desire to pursue you? Lord, our default uh, response is apathy toward you and your ways and your word, but God, would you enliven us today, animate us today to want to want to serve you and love you. So help us, God. I pray that your words would be like food to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me read. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going to start today. Matthew chapter Four verses 1 through 11. And uh, let me tell you that this story of Jesus' temptation is found in all of the synoptic Gospels. Now, you know the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're um, the, the story of Jesus' life from four different perspectives. So if you, if you uh, have never understood why some of the same stories are so often in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospel specifically, it's because we're hearing the story of Jesus' life through the eyes of four different individuals, all of them inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, to give us a full perspective on Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, these four stories, these four Gospels, they um, three of them are really similar in content and and sometimes even the phrasing and wordage is exactly the same. They have a lot of common content. We call those the synoptic gospels. And then there's John that's not like the others. You've seen that Sesame Street sketch where you say, which one is not like the others? Well, John is the one that's not like the others. You might, uh, if you like watching um, cable news, you might like to think of it as uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are sort of like CNN, ABC, NBC, uh, or ABC, CBS, NBC, and, and, um, and uh, John is, is sort of like Fox News. You know, it's like, it's different, really different. It's out, out there. Uh, so, th- so if that helps you, no, but they're all reporting on the same story. So when we look at this, we're going to choose Matthew today and look at Matthew up close uh, Matthew's account, because Matthew's the fullest account, and there's really not any unique information in Luke and Mark that, that contributes in a new or fresh or unique way to what we already learn in Matthew. So you can find information about this story in other, other Gospels, but this one has the fullest account. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says this. Remember, these are God's words. So if, if you have to calibrate your mind, God's talking to us right now. Here's what he says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that's the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, 
He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. And in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone from me, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came ministering to him. So the Christian life, it's supposed to be a life of victory and a life of vitality. But in my experience, many Christians never get to live out that abundant life that Jesus intended for them. They never get to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to give. Our lives are littered with the devastation that comes as a result of our own sinful choices. All, all of us, even those of us who are believers, the effects of sin are very prevalent even in our lives. Our lives are littered with the devastating effects of our own sinful choices, yet we continue, even as Christians, to choose sin and, uh, over Savior over and over again. We choose creation over Creator. That's how Paul puts it, over and over again. Despite the wake of wreckage that the, our rebellion leaves behind us. So we look at our own lives and we see all the, all the sinful choices we've made and all the havoc that has wreaked in our lives, yet we continue to make sinful choices over and over again. Sin has such a powerful command over us and over our lives that we often find it easier to align our standards with our desires than to discipline our desires and actions and attitudes towards God's standards. You know what I mean there? We, we, we sometimes decide it's just easier to shift our standards to be in alignment with our attitudes and actions rather than shift our attitudes and actions to be in alignment with God's standards. That's because fighting sin is hard. Because we live in a fallen world and we have a fallen sinful nature. I've been a pastor since I was 19 years old. That's when I was ordained to ministry. Uh, by the way, I don't think that's wise. It's a little too young. Uh, uh, but I was nonetheless ordained uh, to gospel ministry when I was 19 years old. And I've been a pastor. That makes me having been a pastor for 23 years. I've been in multiple churches in multiple states. And it's my uh, primary responsibility as a pastor. I've, I've grown to understand it's my primary responsibility as a pastor uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians 4.12. So my job is to get you ready for doing ministry. Out in your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your family members. If I do my job well, you minister to other people well. That's, that's what the job of a pastor is. In other words, I get people ready to go work for God. And so if you go out there and you have a fruitful and effective Christian life, then in some measure... I, we've done a good job here helping prepare you for that. And without a doubt, the single greatest challenge to my goal of equipping you for ministry or Pastor Colby's goal or our elders' goal of equipping, equipping you for ministry, getting you ready to go out there and serve God with other people, the single greatest challenge to that is that sin entangles you, encumbers you, ensnares you, 
and immobilizes you. So that many Christians can't live the laid down life that they want to live. The life that Jesus has called them to live because they're entrapped or ensnared in some sin that dominates their lives. And if I'm being honest, it's not just you who fall into those types of snares. I too fall prey to them at times. It's also my single greatest threat. The single greatest threat to my faithfulness and my fruitfulness and my success as a Christian and as a pastor is my own sin. Yeah, pastors struggle with sins too. I can't speak for every pastor, but I can say that I sometimes find myself out of step with God's desires for my life. Out of step with the Spirit, unprepared to serve you because of my own sin. I'm distracted. Sometimes I'm even disoriented. I don't know what to do. I don't have clarity because of my own sin. Sometimes I'm downright just deceived by sin. And so we're not different in that way. We're all in the same boat. And together as a church, kind of what we do here is we're like a big support group to help one another get to God intact. We're we're like a a co-op that helps one another obey Jesus. We're supposed to sharpen one another and help challenge one another. We're supposed to reverberate the message of the gospel back and forth to one another so that we are all strengthened so as we go out there into the world, we can withstand the temptation of Satan. So, over the course of the summer, we've decided that here, the best thing we could do for ourselves, our church, our joy, the glory of God in our community, the mission of multiplying the gospel in our community, the very best thing we could do is help help. Our, our membership, our people, uh, um, with an arsenal of tactics to outwit the devil. So, over the course of the summer, we have considered the best way to serve the body, and we're going to attempt to use the Word of God to focus our attention on sharpening our defenses against the devil's schemes by meditating on passages that help us flee from sin and feast on Christ. So, before we start, I want to, uh, by way of preface, I want to I want to talk about the source of our sin, the source of our sin, because I think there's some confusion around this, like if we were to answer the question, where's sin come from? So it's important to allow the word of God, God's word, his Bible, to shape our understanding of sin and its source, because the way we think about sin naturally, even when we hear the word sin, is shaped by all kinds of different things. The way the world talks about sin, the way TV talks about sin, the way we think about sin, uh, just comes from all these different sources. But God has something to say about sin in his word. And so what we want to do is we want to do everything we can to sort of wipe that, uh, that understanding away and say, from your word, God, what is sin and where does it come from? So let's start there. I want to prepare us today to hear and obey the word of God by answering and answering the, answering, asking and answering the question, where does sin come from? Fortunately, Jesus' little brother, James, who wrote the book of James in the back of the Bible, he answers this question very directly for us in uh, uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. So I think it's on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you as well. This is James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. He says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, And he himself tempts no one. So lock that phrase in. That's a bit of theology for us. One thing we can can take away from this text is God cannot be tempted and God does not tempt anyone. 
But each person is tempted. Now where's the source of temptation and sin come from? Now each person is tempted when he's lured or enticed. Those are sort of hunting words, right? He's lured or enticed. Their, Their trickery, their schemes. He's lured and enticed by, who's the hunter? His own desires. So, so the hunter in the, in, in the enticement is our own desires. So we're at war with ourselves, according to this text. Verse 15, then the desire, when it's conceived, we have a desire for evil, and when that's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then when sin has grown up, when it's fully grown, the passage says, it brings forth death. The image here is that in ourselves... We have a son, and the son kills us, ultimately. That's a very vivid picture. So, this isn't a passage we're here, uh, uh, this isn't the passage we're here to study today, but it's important as a disclaimer before we look to Jesus as our example about how to handle sin that we learn these two important principles from the text. Number one, God never tempts. And number two, we desire to sin. We desire to sin. The, the thing about our desire to sin is it is in us from birth. The scripture teaches us that we're born with the nature for this. Now, one of the major differences between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians agree with God about this. Non-Christians generally disagree with God about this. They think, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, uh, Everybody is basically good. Those are common sentiments in the world today for those who don't trust God. It is not uh, to our advantage to view ourselves in the way that God describes us here. It's to our advantage to view ourselves in the way that we most naturally would do and say that we're pretty good people. We're okay. So according to the passage we just read, what is the source of our sin? Well, it's our own desires. We are the source of our sin. And who tempts us to sin? Well, we actually don't get the answer to that, but we do get the answer that it's not God. We don't know who does the tempting, but we know that it's not God from that passage. Now, this can be confusing because we know that God sometimes tries us or tests us. So let me just take a moment to try to distinguish for you the difference between the testing of God and the temptation of Satan. The testing of God and the temptation of Satan. Because we're tempted to blur those things together and think about them as one big thing, but they're, they're not at all. First of all, the testing of God. So trials and tests are often given by God, according to his word, with a noble aim from God. So if God brings about trials and tests in your life, he has a purpose A noble aim in those trials and tests. He does not mean those for evil in your life. We learn this all over the Bible. God's intentions for you are not evil, but they're good. He has plans for you. They're plans to prosper you and grow you and give a hope and a future. God's intentions for you are good even when he allows testing and trial to come into your life. Actually, especially when God allows testing and trials to come into your life. Actually, trials were taught in James, in the beginning of James 1, we're taught that trials, are they work uh, with God to help enhance our faith and our godliness. So trials and tests are often given by God with a noble aim. 
Uh, trial seeks to discover man's moral quality and character so that man can withstand the schemes of the devil later on. God, uh, God's good motives are revealed to us in, in this. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God's good motives are revealed to us. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what Paul is teaching us here in 1 Corinthians is that God does allow testing and trials into our life, but he only does it once he is sure we have the resources to meet that trial or test. And, and so no temptation has overtaken us that's not common to man, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will also provide always a way of escape. So what God is teaching us here is that the testing of our faith is to produce goodness for us. It's to help us withstand the devil when that time comes. And the testing of our faith is never given to us or applied to us without the means to overcome it. That's great for us who faced him. Uh, uh, trials and tests uh, commonly. Testing is good for the Christian. It aims to make us conscious of our moral self. In fact, it's so good that we should, uh, like King David, seek it out. We should ask for it. We should, we should um, inquire of God if he might give it to us, if he might love us enough to bring about in our lives trials. I know that sounds crazy, but here, uh, Psalm 26, prove me, O God, David says, Try me, test me, hear my mind. In the same way that steel is tested far beyond the, the stress that it's expected to endure to make sure that it will hold up under pressure, James reminds us that the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness. The testing of our faith will produce steadfastness in the face of temptation. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We can be complete, lacking nothing in our walk with God, in our ability to withstand temptation and sin if we welcome and invite even the testing of God. And let steadfastness, it says, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. So God tests his children to prepare them for the temptations that they'll face in life. That's what we learn here, that God tests us to prepare us for temptations that we'll face down the road. Second, the temptation of Satan. So the, the distinction we're trying to draw here is between the testing of God and the temptation of Satan. So second, the temptation of Satan is seduction to evil. You see how that's different than the testing of God. God is not seducing us to evil. He's testing us to make sure we can withstand evil. A seduction to evil, a solicitation to do wrong. In other words, the, the enemy, the tempter, Satan, is rooting for us to lose. Where God is rooting for us to win. The seduction of evil is a solicitation to do wrong. Now, a solicitation only works... When there's a pre-existing desire. Solicitation doesn't work without desire, right? If you get solicited to do something and you don't have any desire to do that thing, it's really not a temptation at all. Solicitation works hand in hand with our own evil desires. 
That's why we're told in the passage that our evil desires are really the source or the root of the problem. A seduction to evil, a solicitation of wrong. Temptation, now um, solicitation only works when there's pre-existing desire. Uh, Pastor John Piper explains it like this. He says, temptation gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. The power of temptation is the prospect that I'll be happier. I don't have, uh, personally, Clint Clifton, I don't really have that much of a desire to drink alcohol. Um, My father and my grandfather were alcoholics. Uh, Many members of my family have struggled with alcohol addiction and abuse. And I've seen firsthand the carnage that that can leave inside of a family. I have also been a pastor, like I said, for 23 years. And I've... uh, I've interacted with many families who have lost jobs and wives and kids and everything due to their addiction to alcohol. I've never sat down with anyone who said, I've lost my wife, family, because I didn't drink alcohol. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 the carnage around it seems is enough for me uh, just to say, you know, I just don't have any interest in that. I don't particularly like the taste of alcohol either. So it's, uh, it's not really something that's ever been too much of a temptation for me. As a result, I I found it pretty easy to resist the temptation to drunkenness, although, like you, I've been tempted at times uh, to become drunk, to drink. Um, In fact, uh, I've never been drunk in in my life, and there's a fairly good chance that I never will be. Um, On the other hand, I am given to some other sins. Gluttony, for example. I am... I am given to gluttony when it comes to food. Um, And I don't say that to be funny. I say that to be serious. Those of you who have been here for a long time have seen me balloon up and shrink down and balloon up and shrink down because I'm constantly fighting in this area of my life. Honestly, I'm far more likely to kill myself with a buffalo wing than a Budweiser. Uh, That's just the truth about me. And the one... The enemy, the tempter, who has a sinister intent toward me, will exploit this reality. He he will know, he will pay attention, and he will exploit my very weaknesses. Which means I'm only as strong as I am when I fortify my weakest component. Which is why our vigilance is required when it comes to gaining victory over sin. We will not gain victory over sin on accident. We will only do it with severe focus. Uh, I have, we have a young man uh, in our church who, uh, I drove his car this week. Um, and uh, his car was really uh, falling apart in so many ways that it seemed dangerous just to go down the road in it, to be honest with you. And... Um, uh, I talked to him afterwards, and I said, uh, your power steering is out. Why? Why? And he was saying, yeah, that just happened a, a few weeks ago, and I was kind of waiting it out, seeing if it correct itself. <laughs> and I said, I just thought, this is youthful naivety. <laughs> like, if you're an adult, you know that it's not going to fix itself. <laughs> like, something about his youthful zeal causes him to believe that I'll just wait it out and it'll start working again. Um, and I just think that's the way we are with sin sometimes. We think, I'll be better next time. I'll get it next time. I'll overcome it next time. I'll be able to gain 
uh, dominance over this aspect of my life in some point in the future. And all the while, it's eating us more and more and more. So you can see the distinction between the trials that God uh, puts us through, leads us into, and the temptation that Satan brings. One is for our good, and one is to kill us. But here's the confusing part. It's possible for the same event to be both a trial and a temptation, because we can see it at several places in, in the New Testament, including the passage uh, we're reading today and in the Old Testament. Think of Job's life, for example. We see in Job's life um, the case that God allowed Job in order to prove him faithful to God. We learn about that in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. That was the intent of it. God allowed it to come into Job's life, those horrible circumstances. Death of family members, loss of possessions, horrible circumstances, disease, to come into his life for the testing of his faith so that he'd be able to endure temptation. So we, we read about that in Job, and that's exactly what we find happens in the temptation of Jesus as well. The passage we're looking at today, Matthew chapter 4. So the first thing I want you to see in Matthew chapter 4, look at verse 1, is that the Spirit leads us into the wilderness. So if you find yourself in a season of trial, there's a good chance that you've been led there by the hand of God, which, by the way, is contradictory to much of the message of Christianity you will hear in much of the world today. Many Christian churches will teach you that God's intentions for you are always good, and that means that he's only going to give you good things. But the truth is, the reality is, and the observable fact is that God often allows trials into our life to produce endurance and faith in us so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. So the confusing part is that it's possible for the same event to be both a trial and a temptation. Like in this scenario where, where God allowed Job to be tested and he allowed Satan to do the testing. And in Jesus' case, uh, we see that Jesus was led up by the Spirit and then tempted by the devil. So there was cooperation, in a sense, between God and Satan. God allowed Satan to, uh, he permitted Satan to um, tempt uh, Jesus. So the spirit did the leading, but the devil did the tempting. This means that there are times when God will give uh, Satan access to you, as he did with Job, and just as he did with Jesus, to test you, to ensure that you're prepared for the onslaught of temptation that you will face in the future. God's testing, his allowing temptation, is a measure of grace. He's rooting for us. He knows that we have the resources to endure. He's provided those resources to us. The same kind of grace you offer your kids when you let go of their hand for the first time to take their few, first few steps, even though you know it's a little dangerous. The same kind of grace a parent offers a child, your Heavenly Father offers to you in this, to allow you to walk on your own in the face of trials and difficulties. So the first thing I want you to see is that the Spirit sometimes leads us into testing. 
The second thing that I want you to see is in verse 2 there. And after having fasted for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And this seems very plain and very simple. But what I want you to see is that depleted physical strength compromises our resistance to temptation. Depleted physical strength compromises our resistance to temptation. This seems like a passing comment, but it's really not. In fact, it might be the most pointed uh, teaching offered by this text. There's a direct link between your physical and your spiritual self. The fact that you are spiritual, uh, uh, the fact is you are spiritually stronger when you are physically stronger. Now, being physically strong doesn't make you spiritually strong, but physical strength helps you to be spiritually stronger. It's, a, it's an interesting connection, one that I probably wouldn't have taught you or agreed with just a few years ago. There is a, a strong connection between our physical strength and our spiritual lives. Therefore, one of the most important things you can do against the schemes of Satan is to care for yourself physically. In, a world, uh, in the world of addiction and recovery, there's uh, an important memory tool that applies to this conversation that we're having today. The fact is, whether we like to admit it or not, if you're a Christian here today, you're, a, you're recovering from an addiction to sin. You're a sin addict in recovery. Um, before this, you had given way to sin. Before you, Jesus, you had given way to sin. You were living your life uh, toward your own ends, your own desires. You were doing whatever you wished in whatever way you liked. And when you came to Jesus, you agreed with God about your sin and you repented and you began, uh, you began working to fight against sin. So whether we like to admit it or not, we're very much like an addict who it has acknowledged our, our addiction. And every addict learns in their first session at AA that the first step in recovery is admitting you have a problem. No wonder that the first step in our spiritual journey, journey is to admit that we have a problem, to agree with God about our sin. We're, uh, if you were walking with Jesus today, there was a moment in the past where you bowed your head in your heart and you said some version of, God, I know that I'm a sinner. That's how the conversation starts. That's where we begin because that's the, the first response of someone who is repenting. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm agreeing with you about who I am. I'm rejecting the world's teaching that I'm a pretty good guy. And I'm saying, no, I'm not a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty wicked guy. And, and you said that about me a long time ago, and now I'm just agreeing with you. That's what happens when we become Christians. We agree with God about our sin. Um, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know, uh, and, and we know that uh, if we're sinners, and the fact that we are sinners makes us susceptible to relapse. We have to make sure that we're putting up guardrails in our lives to keep us on the narrow path of walking with Jesus. By taking care of ourselves uh, and acknowledging susceptibility signs around us, we can avoid the possibility of relapse in our recovery as sinners. The addiction community uses an acronym that I think we could really apply to our lives as well in our recovery of our addiction to sin. 
The acronym is HALT, and the idea is you HALT when you hear one of these things. You stop. And it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. So, uh, the reason I bring this up is because there's an interesting connection here in the text when Jesus stops to just say he was fasting, or where the passage stops to say Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. So, so Jesus was hungry. He was actually really hungry. He was not just hungry, he was starving. He physically had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what happens when you're hungry, your patience grows thin. I mean, we've experienced this slightly. We even have a word for it, hangry, right? Uh, When the waitress takes a little too long or when we have to wait a little too long uh, to get called by the hostess to our table, we get a a little hangry because hunger shortens our patience. And loneliness, I mean, just consider Jesus's loneliness. 40 days and nights in the wilderness. And to say the wilderness, we think about the woods of Virginia. No, he was in the desert. So 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, freezing at night, smoldering during the day. 40 days and four nights, 40 nights hungry, agitated, lonely, dehydrated, and no doubt tired. So we get, it's interesting how hunger, just each of those others, angry, lonely, and tired, sort of fall out of hunger, don't they? So isn't it interesting to, to know that Jesus was hungry and that, that he, he experienced those same things, and then we look at his temptation in the worst of scenarios. The, the chances are you'll never be as hungry, angry, lonely, and tired as Jesus was at this moment. And we get to see how Jesus responded. So look first at verse 3. Here's what the first temptation of Satan was for Jesus. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The first temptation is a very practical temptation. It's a very base temptation. The temptation was to satisfy himself. This is the temptation that we fall so easily to satisfy ourselves, to see our own satisfaction and sustenance physically as the priority over our spiritual lives. In essence, it's a way of saying uh, that we recognize or, or, or of saying that we need food, physical food, more than we need spiritual food. When the reality of the Christian life is we need spiritual food more than we need physical food. This is why God encourages us to fast because it's a way of acknowledging spiritual or physical deprecation for spiritual maturation. It's a way of us uh, 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 harnessing our our, um, physical desires in order to feast on spiritual things. So the temptation is for us to satisfy ourselves. The tempter said, command these stones to become bread. But the response from Jesus was from the word. You see how he puts off one thing to put on another. He puts on the word and he says, it's written, referencing, God says, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see how Jesus, with his mind and his mouth, acknowledged that spiritual food is more important than physical food, even in the midst of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. So the first temptation was to satisfy himself, and the response from Jesus was, the word tells us God's word is more important than food. The second temptation is found in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple. That's the most important building. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and uh, their hands they will bear you up, and at least you strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, the devil knows the word of God too. He's saying, just, just throw yourself down from here because if you are who you say you are, you'll be rescued. He's essentially saying, test God, which we learned already today. Uh, God, God is not to be tested. We are to be tested by God for the building of our faith to produce endurance in us, but we are not to test God. So the temptation here is to test God, to see if he's good. It's the same temptation that happened in the Garden of Eden when Satan said to Adam, did God really say that? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a questioning of the goodness of God. And, and Jesus' response, again, was right from the words of God, right from the mouth of God. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Knowing that it wasn't, wasn't right, he referenced, he drew on the well of God's words in his life to uphold him in this difficult temptation. And the third temptation, the last one we see in this passage, is uh, in verse 8. He says again, the de- it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. So this is a bit supernatural, isn't it? He told him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. There's not a mountain high enough to see all of that. So there's a supernatural thing going on where he's able to see all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you. I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus again Relying on the word of God, not on his own physical endurance. Relying on the word of God. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We learn in this that our only, our only resource for battling the temptation that comes to us is God's word. He gives us his word so that we can stand against the trials. And when Jesus says, or or when the scripture teaches us that there is no trial that we can't endure, it's referencing God's word that is there for us as a tool to overcome temptation. We don't have to rely on our own intuition. We don't have to listen to our hunger. We don't have to listen to our loneliness, to our tiredness, or to our anger. We can listen to God because his words are hidden in our hearts. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 puts it like this. He says, uh, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. His encouragement to us is put on the word, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and stop making provisions for the flesh. Remember earlier I said guardrails in our lives. Those guardrails are, uh, are, uh, is a way of fleeing sin, making it difficult for us to, uh, to sin. And when we make it easy for ourselves to sin, we make provisions for our flesh. I don't have to 
talk to you individually or even talk to us corporately about what it means to make provisions for the flesh, but we all know what it looks like to make it easy to sin in our lives. We all know what it looks like to go to that shady place and do that shady thing or be in that shady dark corner of the internet in order to to make it easy for us to sin. We put ourselves in a place where if we were tempted to sin, it would be easy to fall prey to it. Making provision for the flesh is the opposite of fleeing temptation. And these are the two ideas for us to cling to today. You and your Christian life, you will either make provision for your flesh, you will put yourself in a situation where sin is, the the temptation to sin is likely to overcome you, or you will put yourselves in a situation where the temptation to sin is unlikely to overcome you because you've run away from it. You've, you've fled it. To make provision for the flesh, we accommodate the things that lead to sin and actually make uh, preparations for sinning in our life when we do so. We prepare ourselves to, uh, to, to fall prey to the schemes of the devil. See, because we have these evil desires that come up inside of us, and the only way we can war against those desires is God himself, God's word. So I want to uh, I want to finish us today by, by just uh, looking at, at, a, at a brief passage from a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you guys are familiar with that book. But the result of, of um, resisting temptation, look at verse 11. Verse 11, the end of the passage, the result of Jesus' resistance toward temptation. The devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. We can resist the devil, and he will flee according to God's word. Resist the devil, and he will flee. But if we, if we make provision for the flesh, he's not going anywhere. He's got us. He's got us by the throat, and he's going to keep his hold on us. And so the, the encouragement for us is to resist the devil so that he will flee. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I I believe that in the life of a person who obeys Jesus and has faith, it uh, it becomes consecutively easier to obey God. Because faith gives way to faith, gives way to faith. But in the same way, when we disobey God, we start this progression, we start these patterns, we wear these paths in the ground of giving provision to the flesh, and it is the most easy and natural way for us to go. We have to retrain ourselves in a sense if we're going to become obedient. It's not just a one-time obedience. We have to train ourselves in that sort of obedience. And we often do that by inhibiting our, our access to the things that we are, are susceptible to. So putting ourselves in a church is a great way to do that. Making real friendships and relationships in that church is a real way to do that. Uh, Putting accountability structures in our life is a real way to do that. And when we think of how high the, the stakes are in our life, those thi- see, things seem um, all the more important. So if we resist the devil, he'll flee. Let me tell you this little bit from Pilgrim's Progress. If you're not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, I'd encourage you to become familiar with it. It's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian life, and it's, uh, about a man, it's uh, about a man named Pilgrim, and he goes on a on a long journey uh, to the celestial city. And, and as you can imagine, this is a, a picture of the Christian life. And uh, there's many vivid images in there. But at one um, section of the book, 
they, there's a discussion about temptation that I think is profitable for us today. Um, in, this, um, in this section, the, the author actually helps us out by providing a character in the story called Interpreter. The character's name is Interpreter. And he's there to help us, the reader, understand about the allegory because it gets a little complex okay so interpreter is there for us okay so in pilgrim's progress then he i I saw in it says this it says i saw in my dream that the interpreter took christian by the hand and he led and you can imagine christian is the christian everything's pretty pretty plain here uh interpreter took christian by the hand he led him to a place where there was a fire that was burning against a wall so imagine a wall And there was a fire burning against the wall, and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. And yet the fire burned higher and hotter. So this is the the confusing scenario that Christian's observing. He's looking at a fire against a wall, and somebody's dousing that fire with water, yet that fire is burning higher and hotter all the time. And then Christian said, what does this mean? He asks the interpreter, what does this mean? And the interpreter said, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. And he that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But, but in that you see the fire notwithstanding burning higher and hotter, you will also see the reason for that. So he had him about the backside of the wall. So the interpreter takes him to the backside of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand in which he did also continually cast but secretly it into the fire. So one is dousing water on the fire and the other is dousing oil on the fire. Then Christian says again in desperation to interpreter, what does this mean? And interpreter answered, This is Jesus Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work he'd already begun in our hearts by means of which notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach you, Christian, that it it is hard for the tempted to see how the work of grace is maintained in the soul. See, the story here and the story in your Christian life and my Christian life is even though the world and the tempter and the flesh and the devil are working to extinguish our white-hot passion for God, Jesus Christ stands behind the wall feeding fuel to our fire. And he... He is, he is there for us to resist the temptation to sin, to overcome evil with good, and to depend on him for our hope in eternity. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you very much, and, and I suppose that for the majority of us, our motives for being in this room today are that we genuinely want to know you. We want to please you. We want to obey you. We believe that joyful, abundant life is found in you. Yet we are, we are constantly tempted by the world. There are schemes all around us that, that catch us. And many of us find ourselves so often defeated in the Christian life. God, we, we ask that you would continually pour 
the oil of passion on our lives to, to live for you, to serve you with our whole hearts. God, would you give us an acknowledgement that you are there with us every time we face a difficulty, a trial, a temptation, that we know that you have provided the resources for us to meet that temptation. God, would we depend on you and lean on you and look to you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we face the schemes of the devil. Lord Jesus, please give us endurance in this life. Our temptation is to succumb to temptation, to lay down, to give up. God, we need you to continue to be with us. God, would your spirit enliven us, animate us, give us passion to obey you. God, for many of us in this room, we just, it's been years since we've had any energy to attack our sin. God, would you re-energize us? Would you give us new zeal to fight sin in our lives and cling to you? Lord Jesus, there are some people in this room, no doubt, that their lives are overcome with shameful sin. They feel ensnared and completely entrapped, incapable of escaping. Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, would you, would you surround them with the resources they need to overcome sin? cling to you to live the abundant life that you intend for them. Lord Jesus, could we as a church, could we go the extra mile to help rescue our brothers and sisters? Would you give us a zeal for seeing one another live the full and abundant life you desire for us? God, we, we need you. We cannot do this alone. There's no way our willpower will carry us home. It, it, it will hardly move us an inch, God. And our self-reliance actually takes us backwards. So God, give us a trust in you. Give us a confidence, a desperation that shows us, tells us that you're our only hope for salvation. Lord, the same grace that we needed to come to you in the first place, the grace we need to get through this life. So please, God, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In a few minutes, we're gonna uh, take the Lord's Supper together. And even the taking of the Lord's Supper is an acknowledgement that, that, that Jesus is behind the wall. We know he's there. We know he's, he's providing the oil that we need to live for him. So if you're here today and you're a Christian and you cling to that, that's the hope of your life, this meal is for you. So partake in it with us. Amen.